Egalitarianism is not the opposite of patriarchy. Matriarchy is the opposite of patriarchy. I'm not arguing for matriarchy. I am arguing for equity between the sexes. Um, I'm arguing that we are human and that we should all be treated as fully human. That, my friends, is Dr. Beth Allison Barr, a historian from Baylor University and the author of the new book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. But before we get to Dr. Barr, let me tell you about our friends at Mission Resource Network. Now, I've known these folks for many years, and they help you fulfill the vital role that you have in God's missions. They know you have burning desire to fulfill your calling, and they have some of the top people in the field of missions to help you. As you work to share the hope of Jesus with a broken world, these friends at MRN can help you overcome your most challenging missions problem. And that's not all. One of the best things they do is missionary care. They're experts in it. They know how to help you take care of the missionaries that you send out as well as the families they leave behind. So do yourself, your missionaries, and your missions committee a favor. Reach out to MRN today at mrnet.org. That is mrnet.org and get a free article avoiding the missions black hole by emailing missions at mrnet.org. Again, that's missions at mrnet.org. Okay, so today on the podcast, we have from Waco, Texas, Beth Allison Barr. Uh, one of the things we try to do here at the podcast is help you navigate faith in the modern world and conversations these days about women's role, men's role, uh, how we understood womanhood and masculinity are essential conversations. And this conversation with Dr. Barr is going to help you know just a little bit more about how you can navigate faith in the modern world. So without further ado, here she is. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Now, some of you noticed a few weeks ago in the podcast, Christian Cobes Dume was on, and I said that she was single-handedly destroying the, the Gaines Empire one shiplap board at a time. And some of you are like, she wasn't doing this alone. She's not by herself. And you're right. She has a partner in crime, a tag team partner. And today she is joining us from the epicenter of the Magnolia Empire, Waco, Texas, Dr. Beth Allison Barr. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. You guys are going pretty hard at the Gaines Empire, and you live, like, in the shadows of, what is it? The uh, the silos. How, the well, silo, so that's what it is. I'll yeah. exonerate myself a little bit. I actually was, I did remind, um, when Kristen and I were there, I did remind her, I said, hey, this is where I live. <laughs> and, you know, Magnolia's done great things for Waco. You know, it really has. It's done fantastic things for mm-hmm. Waco. Um, plus... It's not, I don't see Magnolia as a cause of any of this. It's selling a cultural style that people have confused with Christianity. Okay. So, so I actually don't think, it's not the Gaineses. It's not what they're doing. I mean, they can do whatever they want. It's that people think that is part of what it means to be a Christian. Okay. So, That's so where you, I step You don't in. have to have shiplap in your house to be a Christian. Exactly. That's, you don't have okay. to have shiplap. You don't have to have the farm style thing. Um, if you know, for people who like that, it's uh, it's a great you know it's a great style, but it doesn't say anything about your Christianity. Doctor Barr, are you saying this just so you keep your job? Because I feel like there would be a lot of pressure from Baylor to get rid of you if you went after the gains. I feel like they're kind of <laughs> like a Texas treasure, especially a Waco treasure. You couldn't have your job. Let's be honest. Well, you know that's the 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 thing is is that Waco. 
loves the Gaineses and loves Magnolia. But at the same time, it's caused, you know, it's brought a lot of growing pains to Waco. The traffic, the increase in traffic, the increase in tourism. Waco was not a tourist spot. And now it is, which is crazy. Um, So, you know, so I think there is we we love what it has done for Waco. But I hate taking my kids to school in the morning and getting caught in the traffic congestion that is a direct result of the silos traffic. Yeah. So, well, I need to apologize. My wife and sister-in-law and mother-in-law, they, they make pilgrimages up to the silos uh, consistently. So, uh, you know, it's, it's part of it. They have a good bakery. They have really good food trucks in the back. Actually, okay. their food trucks are fantastic. Okay. Um, so. So, so far... I feel like you're doing a better job of connecting with people than Kristen did with her attack on, on the gains. So <laughs> I think you're doing really good job so far. You're doing great. Yeah, I'll let, I'll let Kristen do the attack. She doesn't live here. So <laughs> no, she, she seems like she enjoys that more, but yeah. uh, okay. You did have one line that I would love your feedback. Didn't you, wasn't it you who said in that piece that uh, the homebody shirt that uh, Joanna was wearing um, communicated? Well, for me, as someone who would probably identify as a homebody, I didn't make the connections you did to that about how it perpetuates certain stereotypes about gender uh, and female roles and, and homes. Help help me connect the dots yeah. on why you s- saw that. Well, you know, again, it's one of those things. It's very subtle. It's not. And in fact, I bought, you know, I bought my mother-in-law those homebody sweat, you know, sweat outfit. And she loves it because she likes to wear things like that at home and she loves Magnolia. So it's not necessarily that that is a wrong vibe. It's just the way that it is communicated. And in fact, there I, I'm pretty positive Magnolia does not sell homebody shirts for men. It's the those are for women. Those are the mm. homebody, you know, sort of the sweat outfits that they have. Those are marketed for women. And so it sort of conveys this idea that this understood idea within evangelical culture that women's place is the home. Hmm. And so it's not, it's, as I said, it's not bad. And um, I'm a product of a homemaker. My husband's the product of a homemaker. Um, You know, there are a lot of women who are very called and men too, who are called to, to stay in the home when their kids are small. And um, I think that's very admirable. And I think many people are called to do that. But I don't think just because you are a woman, you are called to do that. And that's really where I would step in. And I would say, you know, it's perfectly fine to wear a homebody sweatshirt and to say, I love this. As long as you don't say this is what all women should do. Yeah. I mean, so that's yeah. So that's it. So it's a subtle sort of thing. Uh, I don't think all people would make that connection because not all people have grown up in evangelical culture. Mm-hmm. But when you see those types of shirts, you know, things that are marketed towards or have a very heavily evangelical um, you know, audience and what it means to them when they buy it may not be what the seller is trying to convey, hmm. but it's because the buyer is from that evangelical culture, which emphasizes that a woman's place is the home. And so it's like, oh my gosh, Joanna Gaines is saying homebody. That's perfect because that's my place. Huh. So it's it's subtle. Yeah. And as I said, I don't blame the Gaineses for it. Um, I think they are, you know, but it's it's one of it's a product of that evangelical. It feeds into that evangelical mindset. Interesting. 
Well, I'm, I'm not the best with subtlety, so maybe I can't connect the dots too well uh, on that. Um, and speaking of not being subtle, uh, I want to play a game. I don't know if you're going to like the game or not. I think it's a fun <laughs> game. It's called, What Did People Like the Least About Your Book? Because um, it seems like your book's oh, done I, really I well. I play that game too. Yeah, like, I just have one question. <laughs> I feel like your book is done really well, and like it's very like uh, commercially successful. And so yeah. like everybody's like, hey, your book's great. Like I feel like as... Um, like if people are going to have criticized, I, I assume you might've gotten at least one oh, maybe critical just, message. Maybe just a little. Maybe one. I assume, no, just tell me if I'm wrong. The peop, the thing that people complain about the most is your stuff on inerrancy and how to read the Bible. How high up on the list is that? Uh, that's pretty high. That okay. I, that was, that's probably in the top three. Top three. Okay. Give yeah. me the other top two then. I'm not sure which one comes out on top. It kind of, depends. Um, so inerrancy is definitely up there. And that was one that I thought would probably be one that people would get really upset about. Okay. Why did uh, you think that was going in? Like, well, we'll because, get to that's, too. because that's what makes it gospel truth um, yeah. is because we have been, we have been raised to believe that the Bible teaches divinely ordained roles between women and men. And that that is part of a literal understanding of the Bible. And if you disagree with that, then that means you disagree with the Bible. I mean, that's it. And that's and so inerrancy has, which is a modern word. Um, in many ways, it's a modern concept. Uh, people don't like that, but it's true. And inerrancy really isn't about biblical text. It's not about believing the Bible. Inerrancy is about believing a particular interpretation of the Bible. Yeah. And it was created in the early, you know, the late 19th, early 20th century fundamentalist movement, um, or is that's really where modern inerrancy is rooted. Yeah. And it was, and it was rooted in a particular interpretation of the Bible. And I, um, I challenge that. I challenge that inerrancy is about believing the Bible because it's not. So, okay. So, you're the historian, uh, not me, but I've heard some connect when the Catholic Church made the move that when uh, the Pope is speaking ex cathedral, it is inerrant. And so. <laughs> yes, that's actually funny. That's interesting. Um, yes, there have been. And then throughout church history, we, we've seen, we actually don't see the Pope make that claim until very late. Um, it's actually the early 14th century that we see the Pope make that type of claim. And if you think about, you know, there's been a papacy, uh, you know, if we, if we go back to Gregory, um, so, you know, we say the seventh century, um, then if that's the beginning of the papacy, then we're talking, you know, 700 years um, before we see a Pope actually make that claim. And so we have to think about too, that even that claim within Catholicism is, uh, is something that is historically constructed as well. And when the Pope made that claim in the early 14th century, um, he lost that claim. He actually ended up getting murdered um, because nobody would believe, you know, I mean, this is fantastic story. It's a horrible story, but it's also a fantastic, my students <laughs> love, yeah. It probably wasn't too fantastic for him, but it's but a it's, compelling yeah, story. It's, it's compelling. My students love this, love when yeah. we talk about this, but it's the beginning of, um, it's the beginning of what becomes the Avignon Papacy, where the Pope is forced out of Rome um, and lives in France for um, for a century. And, and so, I mean, it's this whole chaotic thing. So I guess you could make that parallel, um, but it's not exactly the same. And um, so I would, I would argue 
I see a little bit of continuity there, but it's not it's not the same as what we see coming out of the um, fundamentalist movement in the 19th and 20th century. And so when that was coming out, what do you see as the impetus for that conversation to take place? Yeah. So it was really rooted in what happened in the 19th century with what we um, with um, higher criticism of the Bible, which was something that was rooted in German scholarship. And it really was uh, it, it went too far. But it, you can sort of see all these very excited academics who suddenly were taking apart the Bible and saying, well, these things, we can't find historical proof that the Exodus happened. So therefore, the Exodus didn't happen. It was a complete, you know, it was simply a story that was told to convey these truths. And there's nothing really historically accurate about the Bible. The Bible is just good ideas that tell us that the way humans have decided to tell the story of God, mm-hmm. which was very offensive to many Christians. It was very scary to many Christians um, because it seemed to completely undermine the authority of scripture. And so sort of what began to grow was a countering to that, that was like, no, no, the Bible is true. It is, it is completely true. Um, And in fact, if we begin to water down any of it, if we say that there are parts of it that aren't true um, in a scientific or historical sense, then we are going to be going down that slippery slope of German higher criticism where we say nothing in the Bible is true. And so you can kind of, I mean, somebody actually even put this against me on Twitter. They sent me the slippery slope staircase that starts, you know, at the top with, you know, I, I think it starts with like inerrancy and then it goes down to atheism. And it yep. was sort of like, and I was like, y'all, you know, I, that. How many more steps do you have? Just to get Oh, I still it. got a few, you know, okay, I still good. got, but I'm getting pretty close. Yeah, good so, for you. Congrats you know, on according that. to that staircase, I'm getting close to atheism, which, yeah. you know, I'm not at all. <laughs> and, and in the same way that people, if they, they buy into this, it's sort of like an intramural debate of like Protestant Christians of, you know, German high critical thinking. And then you have uh, like inerrancy as no, we're going to go back. Um, so for you, if you were saying like, I don't believe in inerrancy, uh, you're not saying that you're getting rid of the Bible, but you would just no. use different language to describe the importance of the yeah. scriptures. Uh, yeah, I think the Bible, I, I, I do believe, I believe in scriptural authority. Um, I just also believe that God didn't create us to accept the Bible. I mean, the Bible is a product. It's inspired by God, but a product of human hands. And we cannot separate the the cultural influences, the people who who wrote the Bible and who recorded it and who orally transmitted it. Um, I mean, they were part of a culture and all texts are part of a context. And we cannot understand text without understanding their context. And that does nothing to erode scriptural authority. And that's what we've got to get across is that understanding text within their context actually is a better understanding of what the Bible is trying to tell us. It is not eroding scriptural authority. In some ways, it's actually letting scripture do what it wants to do. Yes, that's and exactly some, right. And in some ways, you see these clues within Scripture of Scripture making observations of where it's located. And for us, in some ways, to take Scripture at its word and to truly believe it is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, um, yes. and that it's inspired is to let the Bible be what the Bible says it is. Instead of right. like it, instead of being a prop in some sort of like intramural debate between you know oh it's you know Christians in Germany or whatever um, to let the Bible be itself and not be drug into our own little. Petty debates. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Is that 
when we when we divorce the Bible from its historical context, um, then what we have done is we haven't we haven't removed it from all human influence. We have simply superimposed our own cultural experience onto the Bible, which is even worse than you know. I mean that has that not only. I mean, that really does erode scriptural authority, it seems to yeah. me, because instead of understanding what the text is really trying to say to us, it is actually us trying to make the text say what we want. Yeah. And yeah. and so and that so, I mean, I'm for scriptural authority. And I think inerrancy has actually produced Christians who are uh, perpetuating ideas that aren't scriptural. Yeah. And it doesn't acknowledge that there's cultural influences all around us. Right. And in some ways, there's like the old parable about the... Uh, the three fish, the two uh, two young fish, and then the older fish swims by, and the older fish looks at the younger fish and says, "How's the water today, boys?" And they're like, "What's water?" And yeah. it, it's to speak of like we are swimming in something around us, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. And it, it, in your book, you you reference uh, from a few years ago when the TNIV came out. Yeah. And the TNIV, for those who don't know, was the NIV, which is a very common translation that had um, gender inclusive language in it. And so instead of the masculine pronouns always being he, uh, it, they reflected the pronouns of scripture, which were not gender specific. And right. so there's some big pushback. And so in the book, you make the acknowledgement that there are some who pushed back and said, yes, they acknowledge the TNIV is influenced by culture, uh, feminism, but they don't acknowledge that other translations are also impacted by culture, which is patriarchy, and that they're right. both swimming in the water of culture. No one is immune from the influences of what's around them. Exactly. That is exactly right. And that actually is the the second part of my book that people hated or loved the most was <laughs> my discussion of gender inclusive language. Um, okay, so that's that, number is it number two? That's okay. That's you know, I guess you could tie that up with inerrancy. I mean, that's the thing, is that inerrancy could be tied up with is part of my conversation about scripture um, and the translation of the ESV. Um, it is also tied up with, you know, Paul. Yeah. course, which is the other thing, you know, that people, um, but I, I actually think maybe the part that has come to, to the top of people being most upset with me is Arianism. Really? Yeah. And it's, um, because, huh. because I essentially said that complementarianism has gone the direction of heresy, which well, I, I mean, believe it has. Th- I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you come in pretty strong. There's a few places that are like, well, you're you, Dr. Barr is coming in pretty strong right here. Um, like that, that one's, you know, that's, that's up there on the coming in pretty strong. Comments. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that's, um, that's the one that's kind of surprised me because to me, it's just so obvious that mm-hmm. this is, you know, and people are like, well, you know, Arianism is more complicated than that. And I'm like, well, yeah, I'm a, church historian i totally understand all the nuances of arianism but when you get down to the bottom of it arianism is a teaching that it's the first clear manifestation of a teaching that jesus is subordinate to god the father i mean in some ways that encapsulates the essence of arianism so even if it has different manifestations and there's different components to it and um, the priest arius taught a different type of arianism that doesn't mean that, you know, if we use it in that general term, that it is saying that Jesus 
is of a different substance than God the Father. I mean, that's that's the essence of Arianism. Yeah. And so I'm just like, well, you know, spades a spade. You can argue if it's a red spade or a black spade, but it's a spade. So yeah. you know, I'll just I'll just sit on the spade. Yeah, I mean, there was a re- reason you have uh, a church council um, about uh, the Trinity. I mean, it, yeah. the early church kind of said like this is uh, a big deal. Okay, and so uh, connect the dots though. How is complementarianism? Which okay. Let's talk about the language. No, we'll come back. Can we to define what I mean. I can define whatever you want me to define. Well, okay. I think there's a whole conversation about complementarian versus patriarchy, and like your willingness to like connect those two, mm-hmm. um, which we're going to come back to. Um, l- let's talk about like how it's heresy first, though. Okay, sure. Yeah. So um, the the whole concept of Christianity is rooted in this idea of God sending, of God coming to save humanity and then leaving God with people to live through us um, and to transform us. I mean, that's Christianity. Is God, God, the creator of the universe, comes as God to save. The reason it works, salvation works, is because it is God who takes on humanity's sin. And then God gives God, you know, sort of restores that relationship in the garden where Adam and Eve, however you interpret that, Adam and Eve were with God. We are now with God again, with the advent of the Holy Spirit. So it's all God. This, you know, and and the Bible is very clear about the way that it talks about it. The Trinity is our best understanding of how this works. That we are not talking about multiple gods. This is one of the things that makes the the um, the God of the Hebrew people stand out from the rest of the world around them. Is that it is one God. It is monotheism. It is not polytheism. Very few other manifestations of monotheism. Um, and you know, I talk about this in when I teach ancient history. And so, I mean, this is a really, this is a really clear change when we think about human religion and he, and the Hebrew faith is the, is the clearest manifestation of monotheism. Um, so this is what makes it remarkable. This is why salvation works. Um, and so what you, what Arianism does is Arianism brings back in this idea, you know, it's sort of this human understanding. Whenever humans try to put God inside our own head and be like, oh, well, this makes more sense. And it's sort of like, okay, so we understand that humans, we have children who are made of part of us, but aren't exactly us, right? And so there was this understanding that this is what Jesus is, is that Jesus is literally created by God and sent by God. And even though he has God pieces in him, He's not exactly the same as God the Father. Hmm. And that is two gods. That's not one God. And that also means that salvation only works because it is Jesus is fully God. Um, I mean, that's been a lot. I mean, that's why salvation works is because Jesus is fully God. So anything that diminishes the role of um, God the Son as being less than fully the same substance as God the Father is by definition heresy. I am not using the word heresy lightly. I don't go around calling all sorts of different things heresy, but anything that diminishes God the Son as being less than fully the substance of God the Father is heresy. 
-hmm. And that is what eternal subordination of the sun, which was created by complementarians who were trying to argue for the divine difference between women and men. That is the whole reason that they came up with eternal subordination of the sun or eternal functional subordination. Give us a brief thumbnail definition of that though. So we're- Yeah, eternal subordination of the sun, eternal functional subordination, whatever you want to call it. It's essentially the same thing. And what it simply, what it argues is that Jesus um, is God, but that Jesus is created with a, has a different job, essentially. That Jesus has, and that job is subordinate to God the Father. And so the argument is that women need to be content with their subordinate role to men because Jesus is content with his subordinate role to God the Father. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you flip that, though, on its logical part, women are not. I mean, it's funny to me because one of the things they argue about feminism is they say that we are trying to conflate the sexes. Um, But if they are really trying to argue that Jesus and God are the same, then they should be able to make that argument between women and men, that women and men are really the same too. Um, But nonetheless, they, in order to substantiate their gender hierarchy, they have argued against Christian orthodoxy that Jesus is different in function from God the Father. And Jesus cannot be different in function from God the Father if they are the same substance. And so this is anyway, so it's, it, it's not, some people, you know, call it quasi Arianism. It's only half Arianism. No, that's fine. Whatever. You know, I, as I said, I, those nuances are there and you can get into lots of, um, of, uh, you know, pedantic arguments about it. But if you just look at it, the face value, it is heresy that argues that Jesus is less than God, the father. Mm Mm-hmm. And when you tie gender roles to like your understanding of Trinity, mm-hmm. um, it, it, like it makes a lot of sense to go, okay, this is God, this is Jesus, this is how we relate to each other. It, it, it makes sense. Um, one of the things that I, I find confusing is the way in which we've seen uh, gender roles be equated with like the foundation of what faith is though. Mm-hmm. And for me to understand like how we relate to each other, I think it starts with understanding how God relates to God in the Trinity. Like, so, so I get that. Um, but I know one of the things that I've heard you talk about is the fact that you've had some like fundamentalists who said, uh, like, here's the you know five fundamental things of faith, and then we're also going to include in that um, complementarianism or patriarchy. Yeah, multi yeah, gospel coalition. I have that written in to and, you know the fundamentals of faith. But if you're connecting this not being um if it's a heretical teaching because it's a misunderstanding of the trinity the way that they're teaching it um how how do you think you're doing something different though like because you're saying like this is predicated upon understanding the trinity correctly and if you don't then what happens is you have patriarchy which is subverting like the understanding of the trinity as the church has you know held it up for hundreds and hundreds of years does it make sense uh maybe so what you're saying is essentially by arguing that gender roles are not part of the fundamental of faith, that that is in some ways making the same sort of, yeah. you know, it's tying gender into well, it in a way. Okay, let, let me say it more directly because I feel like I made the question very ambiguous. 
I, like, I think it's kind of ridiculous to say if you're not a complementarian, then you're heretical because that's a foundation of faith, right? So I, I agree with that. On the other side, if you're going to say that to believe in patriarchy or complementarianism, um, it subverts the Trinity and therefore that makes it heretical. Oh, well, that's, I, like, yeah, that's, I think, also where people have confused me is that I don't argue that all complementarianisms have gone the way of Arianism. Um, it's just that the leaders of the complementarian movement who helped establish and even write the name complementarian in the late 1980s, they are the ones who came up with eternal subordination of the sun, you know, um, a few years later, essentially for the purpose of trying to provide theological grounding for their view. So um, patriarchy has existed in Christianity without being heretical. Um, so I would not argue that all complementarians or all people who believe in male headship and female subordination are heretical. I would argue that Wayne Grudem introduced and um, that introduced a heretical concept into his systematic theology and into complementarianism. Bruce Ware did also. He wrote it into a children's book um, that called Big Truths for Little Hearts, which yeah, is it on your bookshelf? It is. Oh, oh, come on! Why are we gonna? Time I was I, looking for my water bottle. Don't do, don't do me like that. I don't have it on my bookshelf. Time, well, sorry. The come first on. time somebody gave it to me at church for my daughter when she was born, and <laughs> I started reading it because I always read. You know, I started reading Beth, it. I, and I we literally, I literally almost dropped it. Oh, it was horrific. I'll look for my water bottle too, so we can say okay. we're not looking for. It. But I have big truths for little hearts on my iPad because you know. I always have to reference it. Um, But nonetheless, I mean, so that's what's heretical is, (laughs) is what they did. And it shows the, you know, the problem is, is that complementarianism is not in the gospel. Patriarchy is not written into the gospel, has nothing to do with salvation. The reason which, so in order to make that claim, in order to emphasize female subordination, they were trying to ground it in the Trinity to give themselves theological footing, which shows how far they were willing to go to support a human teaching. Yeah. And I think that should be a lesson for everyone, whether uh, you, uh, you connect to complementarian teaching or not, but there is a propensity to subordinate like basic theology for your own like personal yes. ideology that you want to put forward. And yeah. uh, like, that's pretty bad. Like that's, that's basically what we call heresy. Um, yes. And yes. like, I, I think that's a nice reminder that each and every one of us could do the same thing, but yeah, that's, yeah. that's not good. Like on, on, like I am not a professional theologian, I guess I am as a pastor, but like, I'm not like a, like academic, but I would say like, that's an F if you're turning that paper in. That's like, that's, you can't pass with that. Like that's Lots. not good. Lots of academics looked at the reasoning. I mean, like, heck, I mean, I've read, I, I didn't read Recovering from the Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood until really late mm-hmm. because mostly I just couldn't stomach it. And I started reading it and like some of the, I was like, y'all, this wouldn't pass my class. You couldn't make this argument to me and pass this, you know, this, the reason I'm like, this, this is what we, this is what we have fallen for. I mean, it's just, it's mind boggling to me that you know, this is yeah. what we have fallen for. I think um, I think it was a guy named Peter Rollins, who's a philosopher from uh, Belfast. And years ago, I feel like I got this idea from him that most 
like apologetic books are not written for people who are not connected to the faith, but people who are already inside the faith. And what they're looking for is not ideas to like change their mind, but they want arguments to substantiate what they already think. It's exactly right. Confirmation. Confirmation confirmation, bias. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, that's what we're looking for. And so when you read a book like that, or even your book in some ways, like if, if you have a position you're going to want your like your book to validate what you already think. And as a pastor, like I know a lot of times people come to church and they want to be reaffirmed what they already believe. And I do think there's a very good place for that. Like as a person of faith, like we need to be reminded of what we believe to be true. Now, but when it comes to like these big ideas, I think it reminds us that we're far more biased than any of us want to admit. And, right? Yeah, no. And in fact, I was just thinking, that's one of the things that has pleased me about how, the reception of my book is on the one hand, I do get a lot of people who write to me and be like, I knew this, I knew this all along, and now you validate it. And I'm like, I'm glad for that. Um, but the ones that really excite me are the ones that say, you rocked my world, you pulled out my foundations. And now I realize I've been wrong. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's, though, I mean, I want both to be reading it, because I think we need to have a better understanding of why, you know, a better understanding for where these ideas came from, that women are not equal to men. Um, Even if we already believe in women's equality, we need to figure out where those ideas or women's equity really is kind of better. But then I also really want the people who were challenged by my book Mm -hmm. and hung in reading it and walked away from it being challenged and letting themselves be challenged. That is what really makes me excited. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a helpful read for that. I, I do think one, so when you write a book, like you have to come in hot, like you have to have like a strong, compelling story and you have to, you know, speak in a way that's compelling. And obviously like the story that you start with is pretty heartbreaking. Uh, Your husband's employment ending over conversations on gender uh, and the way they handle it. Like as someone who works at a church, like I'm really sorry. It's pretty horrific. Oh, well, it's a common story as we all know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, unfortunately so, and uh, but I still hate that it happened to you. Um, but like that's kind of like y- you start writing out of that. And so you make this comparison soon after that story about uh, silence on, on mm-hmm. these conversations are equated to enabling mm-hmm. sexual abuse. Yep. And like that's a pretty – like that's a pretty strong claim – that for some are like, no, I, I don't see how I'm compared to wow. whatever seminary professor who just told someone, you know, just forgive and move on. Like, it seems like, oh, I, I don't see how that could connect to me having a position that says, you know, I don't think women should be praying in public on Sunday morning. It seems like there's a yeah. big jump from there. No, and you're, you're exactly right. I did. I, and what's funny about it is when I wrote that, it didn't occur to me that I, I mean, I, I, I didn't write it to be polemical. I didn't write it to like make a huge claim that was going to be controversial in the beginning. I wrote it because I had connected the dots hmm. and system. And part of that is, you know, as I said, I think one of my strengths as a historian, you know, all historians, we all are taught the same skills, you know, the same type of skills that we approach things with, but we're all, we're all, we all have different strengths in different ways. Um, I'm really good at connecting dots across long periods of time. And that's, and I'm a social historian. I'm trained in what, um, you know, a really classic sort of social history. Um, it's often what we, it's the long view. It's where we look at things over time. We look at continuities, but then also differences within continuity. 
And so one of the, the things that the patterns that we find in systems that silence women is that we find more, you know, we find um, systems that also enable abusers. It doesn't mean that all people who are complementarian are going to become abusers. It doesn't make people abusive. It enables it because it silenced the victims of that abuse and it empowers. It says that, you know, essentially complementarianism, patriarchy says that there is something innately about women that makes them unable to lead the way men do, which says that there is something about women's voice that is less significant than men's voice. I mean, that really lays at the bottom of it. Um, you know, we can even think about in the medieval law code, um, it took more women to be witnesses to count for the voice of one man. I mean, that's we see that in churches all the time. Um, and so systems that say that there is something about women that makes them always have to be under the authority of men and have to rely on the authority of men, that makes their voices less influential and makes it less likely for men to listen to their voices. And it is in systems like that that abuse flourishes. And so it doesn't say it always happens, but it says that this enables those types of systems. And my gosh, the evidence is overwhelming that this has happened. The churches that are more conservative, that put fewer women at the table, that silence women, you know, really much more, have very poor track records. And um, more so, more so than uh, egalitarian communities? Yeah. Um, so, you know, somebody else has posed that to me too. And the, you know, the problem here that we are working on is that patriarchy is everywhere and even in egalitarian systems. And we think about like Bill Hybels. Um, so Bill Hybels, of course, was at a church that was empowering women in some sense, allowing women to be at the table, etc. But at the same time, he still ran that church in this authoritarian power structure um, that even if he rose women, raised women up, he did not raise women up to his elevation. He was always above, you know, he was the powerhouse behind all of that. And so he was still silencing voices, not just but, women's, but also men's. But like his replacement, uh, like two people, Stephen, I, I don't remember the woman. Oh, yeah, it was a man I, and a woman. Yeah, but like Steve yeah, was on the uh, friend was on the podcast a couple weeks ago, but it was him and someone else. So he, when Heibel stepped out, like he created a system in which he was replaced though. Um, sort of. You can kind of look at, I mean, it was kind of also like, you think about it historically, you look at these, these people who retire, but still remain, you know, the, the power behind the throne. So I don't yeah. know, you know, I haven't investigated Willow Creek in depth, but I am not surprised given the authoritarian structure of that church and the way that he ran and, you know, the evidence, I can see you disagree with me. On no, this, I, but, I'm not saying I disagree. You know, I'm, like I'm processing it. And I don't, I, I don't have a, I don't have a, um, I'm not egalitarian systems do not mean that there is not going to be abuse, but egalitarian systems do allow more women to have a voice at the table. Now, the problem is, is that if you think about like I'm Baptist, um, I am Texas Baptist and Texas Baptists um, are supportive of women in ministry. Mm. Um, you know, Baptist General Convention of Texas, even the, the CBF, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, is supportive of women in ministry. Yet women make up a tiny percentage of the pastors in both 
General Baptist, Texas Baptist churches, and Cooperative Baptist Fellowship churches. Um, when you look at the staffing of most of these churches, it is still mostly men at the table. It is still mostly male deacons, male elders. So even though, you know, essentially what's happening is they are still, they are with words empowering women, but in practice, they are not. So this still, you know, as I said, um, there is probably less, you know, there's more women at the table, more voices that seem to be listened to. But uh, these systems grow out of this um, conservative evangelical uh, system that has devalued women's voices for so long Mm -hmm. that men, even men who are giving lip service to egalitarian positions are still not listening to women's voices that would say the way they listen to men's voices. So, I mean, patriarchy is deeply entrenched and it hurts women. Um, whether you're at an egalitarian church or a complementarian church, it hurts women. It seems like the, the numbers are pretty straightforward that, uh, unfortunately, most abu- uh, victims of sexual abuse are women. And yeah. I, I've heard some speculate. I've heard Brene Brown speculate that she thinks that might change in the future as attitudes towards sexual abuse. Uh, victims might change. I, I don't know. Like that speculation. Yeah. But right now, it seems like the evidence is mostly uh, predominantly more women are sexually abused than men. And if you don't have women's voices representing uh, in a situation like that, it seems like that would. I mean, it comes down to power. This is why it's about power. I mean, let's look at the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church has a really serious um, problem with with sex abuse scandals with clergy, which is mostly men and boys. Um, You know, there are some women involved in it, but it's, you know, it's it's priests, male priests and boys. Um, But. This, the what lies at the basis of that, too, is this power structure where we have a Catholic clergy, which uh, because of, you know, different from Protestantism, that the Catholic clergy are called and actually have are have a I don't you know, I'm doing this very much in lay terms, but there is not everyone, you know, the calling for clergy puts them at a different level than what Protestant pastors are supposed to, you know, Protestant pastors are one of them. Now, I actually don't think we treat them that way. Um, I think it's fascinating parallels we find between the Catholic priesthood and what we've done with evangelical pastors. But that's a whole other story. Um, But you can't just say that and move on. I'm very (laughs) curious now. Oh, I've Um, written about it before. I have a blog post that I wrote um, comparing Mark Driscoll, even before all of the stuff was going on with him comparing Mark Driscoll to, to, uh, a Pope. to yeah. A, well, yeah, to the Catholic priesthood. So, you know, I think, but the problem is the power is that those, those boys, they were put in a situation where they were completely under the authority. They had no voice. They had to go to confession to be with these priests and nobody would believe them because they were in these powerless positions. So it is, it is when we say that there are some people that have this God-given power over other people, and there's no checks and balances on that person in power, that's what happens. And complementarianism puts women under the power of men without recourse. That Catholic, that system in Catholicism put young boys in the confessional under the power of priests without recourse. So is it more conversation, your opinion, about power than it is just about patriarchy is about power. And so if you've, okay. So if you flipped a switch and it was the other way around, do you think the power would, uh, again, this is a ridiculous question, but if it's truly about power and 
it, it's it flipped from men versus women having all the power. Do you think it, it the power would corrupt the same way? Yes, and and um, egalitarianism is not the opposite of patriarchy. Matriarchy is the opposite of patriarchy. I'm not arguing for matriarchy. I am arguing for equity between the sexes. Um, I'm arguing that we are human and that we should all be treated as fully human and that no, neither sex is more human than the other one or more valued by God or is created um, to be able to have power over the other one. Um, I'm arguing for equity and that is that is a system that humans have the most difficulty um, striving for because it is in our nature to want to have power. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, I mean, you know, yeah. feminists don't argue for matriarchy. Um, we argue for equity. Mm-hmm. Is that okay. helpful? That, no, You've I gotten me on fire. This, Of course, I'm also teaching my women's history and theory class this afternoon, you know, so I'm all ready for that. So there you uh, are. Okay, well, I wish you would have told me that beforehand because I would have been more caffeinated. Uh, actually, I don't even drink caffeine, but I would this time. Okay, uh, we're running out of time, but I got a couple quick questions for you. Okay, uh, first of all, uh, teaching on uh, the idea that men and women are created to be equal. Mm-hmm. Here's my biggest hang-up on that when I teach, and I feel like this is a weakness in how I've taught this um, before, is I think that the consequence of the fall is broken relationship between men and women. And God's ideal is for man and woman to be together. Uh, Helpmate, uh, as I understand it, was a term that's more often used to describe God to Israel in Jewish texts. And so we would never say that God is subordinate to Israel because God is Israel's right. helpmate. Right? Yeah. And so, but here's, my, here's, the, uh, here's the hole in my argument. In Genesis 2, the second creation account, Adam names the animals because Adam has authority over them. Adam names the woman. Boom. If, if I hold the argument that naming yeah. the animals is part of having authority over them and Adam names Eve in creation account number two, I feel like I'm kind of in a jam because I'm like, if I'm wanting to hold this Why position. Why does naming have authority? Uh, I, like, that's Where how I. Where did that idea come from? It, like, it's not me. It's someone smarter than me. Yeah. Um, yeah, it okay. comes from these complementarian teachings. Uh, okay, it comes from people. I felt like you jumped it like, yeah, they're smarter than you, real fast. I felt like. Oh you no, could've... no, no! I'm sorry. I just okay, meant that you, you got it from somebody else. Everybody's, you know what? That's the thing about being um, in academia is that you're very willing to admit there are people smarter than you because there are always well, I, people. Okay, smarter I'm willing people. to admit. I didn't want you it's to admit it insult. for me. I didn't want you to admit it for me. That's all. <laughs> I'm okay, sorry so, about that. Okay, but you don't read the naming. The no, animals. No, no, okay. no. No, that is something that we added to that. It was not interpreted that way before. We added that hierarchy in. There is no hierarchy. I mean, we have read hierarchy into this early text. This is not something that was originally in the text. It is something we have read into the text. Okay. So um, I would encourage people to go and read more. I mean, go find This is what we do. Go find out why do you think that implies hierarchy? Mm-hmm. And just go follow that rabbit trail. I mean, you don't have to take my word for it. Just go ask yourself that question. What if it, instead of starting from the assumption that naming implies hierarchy, why don't we be like, well, why do we think it implies hierarchy Mm -hmm. and go from there? So I would encourage you to go and do that because, you know, actually what, you know, really, if you talk about it this way, you have two, you have two parts. And this is what's so funny about it is that you have the whole naming thing. And then you also have, but part of that is because Adam is then, you know, created before Eve. These two things are both put in here. 
um, you know, that this is that Adam, um, you know, that Adam is created after the animals, which is why he has authority over them. And then he's able to name them. But Eve is created after Adam. And so she actually is the, the culmination of God's creation. She is the ultimate. Cre- I mean, so if you're going to use that logic. That's good. That's good. Why are, where, where, I mean, it just doesn't work. The logic falls apart when we try to do it by creation order or by creation naming. The other thing is, is that that whole hierarchy thing with naming actually comes from reading 1 Corinthians 11 back into that early text. 1 Corinthians 11 about the headship doesn't have to do with hierarchy. That is actually a contextual argument. Um, you know, as I said, it's one of those texts in context. It's just that we have taken it out, made it hierarchy, read it backwards into Genesis, and voila. Mm-hmm. Okay, you did pretty good. I tried it. to do that really fast because I don't want to tell time. So, that, that, I mean, it, it, it's your time. You're, and that was a good one. Okay, um, next one. But in most superhero movies, it was typically men who were stronger than women. And now, obviously, we know the feminists are taking over Marvel movies because women. Oh, now I know. Everyone's so su- excited about that. It doesn't make like, but have you thought about that argument? Because I've heard someone make it. It's pretty compelling that most superheroes were guys, so therefore guys should be in charge of women. When were they writing superhero books? When did this start coming from? Let's put this in context. When do the comic books start being written? Mm-hmm. Okay. This is twentieth century stuff. No. This I- is- it was at the beginning. Like, isn't that the story of like, uh, that's how Africa, Black Panther, like it, I thought that, no, it's not ancient. Okay. Okay. Next question. I mean, if you want to look, go read the Epic of Gilgamesh and talk about Ishtar, you know, she's the one who is, unleashes zombies on the earth, um, you know, okay. has more, I mean, you know, she, her father has to take her seriously because she has that power to do that over him. Anyway, don't okay. get me started on that Ishtar. Okay, fine. I, I won't start you. Uh, final answer. Do you, uh, as someone who myself, I typically don't use gender pronouns for, for God. On occasion, I will. So it's like oh, maybe yeah. 99.8% it's, you know, God, God. At some point, can we just acknowledge like it's super awkward and it, it never sounds natural to just refer to God as God's self? Can we just, can someone just come yeah, up with I, something better? If, if you notice, I don't actually really do that. So, um, I felt like you were doing the, the God and God self, like early in the conversation. Oh, God. Well, no, I was just trying to say God, 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 that God, the Father, oh. God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. I've right actually now. referenced God. I usually reference God as he, which some other people have called me on that. And um, I'm like, look, you know, part of being a historian, too, is that, first of all, I think God is um, I think God is above gender. I don't think any of our terms, you know, I mean, God is God. We, we came from God. Um, God is also in the image of God, male and female. He created them in the image of God. We see plural terms used for God in the beginning. This also has created, a, you know, our Mormon friends have pulled from that into the plurality of God. Part of, I mean, it's just, there's all sorts of interesting things going on here. Um, but we also know that the way Jesus is referenced as God the Father, and we see God referenced in the Old Testament, um, is with male pronouns. It doesn't bother me. Um, I don't know. I mean, where it comes down to is we think about Mary Daly, um, who says when God is male, male is God. So I think there's a difference between we have to understand it doesn't bother me what pronouns you use for God, because I know that God is above gender. Um, I grew up using male pronouns with God. Doesn't bother me. I keep doing that. Uh, But at the same time, 
when we equate, and this is where I get at because a lot of my, um, you know, I have you know, Catholic friends as well as some other complementarians. I think one of the strongest arguments for men as priests is probably the, the male imagery. You know, Jesus is, is male, a male body at the altar. Um, but at the same time, that is equating the male body with God. And that I think is highly dangerous. And that's where I think it comes in. So I think it kind of depends on what's the purpose. If you're just defaulting to, you know, Father God, if that's what, I mean, that's why Jesus used it because it was comfortable to all of them. So it doesn't bother me from that sense. But if you are defaulting to it in the sense that male is God or that male is closer to God than women, then that's problematic. And that's where, so, you know, as I said, I'm not going to go around policing people's pronouns. Um, You know, medieval people did refer to God as, as, as mother. So there's a long history of people using different pronouns, using female pronouns for God and medieval people didn't really have a problem with it. Uh, I mean, it was not terribly common, but we did see it quite a bit. Um, so it doesn't bother me when people do that today, if they feel comfortable doing that. God's self is, is just because English is a poor language for, we don't have a gender neutral pronoun. And so it's not really, it's mostly just because we have a bad language for conveying a concept for conveying God. Mm -hmm. So, and I don't know if that was helpful at all. No, it's good. It's good. Um, it was, you know, I feel like I need to say like, when you said, like, uh, cause you said, I don't know if that's good. It makes me feel like I'm having to like judge your answers because before when you're talking about, uh, Hybel and Willow, like you're like, Luke, I know you disagree with that. I like, I don't disagree. <laughs> I just saw like, your facial expressions. I so, was you know. thinking like I was processing and, uh, it just made me think that's what it was. And so right now I'm positively affirming what, like with head nodding. I want my listeners to know that I'm very supportive of oh, Dr. Well, Barr and okay. what you say, but the, the Willow thing is, I, I think you're right. Like it's a power thing. And, and okay. I I guess I'm just still having to process this because you made me think about it. I had somebody too. I was in a thing. It was actually really great. It was a bunch of Adventist pastors and they asked me to come and talk. And, you know, this was sort of the, I think one of them, it was like, he was pulling it out. Like, this is the final thing. He's like, well, you know, sex abuse happens in egalitarian churches too. And I'm like, of course it does. Uh, (laughs) Because, Patriarchy is everywhere and patriarchy is about power. And um, the problem is, is that when we put people in power with very few checks and balances on them and don't allow enough voices to, you know, call them on it, that this creates situations that allows abuse to flourish. And complementarian churches create that power with men at the top, with all male voices around it. And women do not have any recourse. And that creates, you know, that's a system that is ripe for abuse. Just go ask Sovereign Grace Ministries. Just go ask Mark Driscoll. Go ask Acts 29 Churches. Go ask Fundamentalist Baptist Churches. Go ask the SBC. Hmm. That, I mean, that was a lot right there. Um, the, for the, like, there's no sexual uh, abuse claim against Mark Driscoll. Um, oh, that is true. Talking about I, the church, the system. There's, there's yeah, plenty the system. of abuse, plenty of abuse. Uh, and the stories I've heard that I'm not going to put on air because I can't substantiate them, uh, but just wanted to... Alleged. You can put alleged and all of those things that I said, that the the, uh, the abuse, not just sexual abuse, but the abuse where women are left out of power. Um, 
So and see, okay, so this is part of the thing when you say, like, I, when I hear the word abuse, I think like trauma, uh, like. I guess the word abuse is a pretty expansive term that can mean a lot of things. And it seems sometimes if we use it flippantly, it like it devalues some people who had trauma that is inconsistent with the kind of other abuses that we're like putting in that big blanket term. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. But I mean, I think also, as I said, I call a spade a spade. Um, when you devalue the humanity of a person, and when you make them feel like they are less than you and that they are unable to speak out about the things that dehumanize them, that's yep. abuse. There are different manifestations of abuse. I mean, it's like women who are in abuse situations. Just because they're not beaten up by their husband, does that mean their husbands aren't abusive? Women who are in emotionally abusive situations, women who um, you know consider committing a, a suicide because they can, you know, because their home environment, the control of them is so horrific. That's abuse. Um, uh, you know, it, so I think we also need to realize that we don't just call out what we would consider to be the most severe, because we often associate most severe with, you know, sexual abuse, with rape. But then we also know that many women live in marriages where they don't get to consent. Um you know, that because they believe that their bodies belong to their husbands. I mean, just go read Love and Respect. I mean, Sheila um, Gregor has been talking about this with the Great Sex Rescue. Um, you know, women are live in situations where they believe their bodies belong to their husbands. And, and that is not a healthy situation either. So, I mean, I just think, I think, yeah, we shouldn't be flipping about it. But at the same time, we need to realize that there is a broad spectrum and that people are when people's humanity is lessened by another person, that that is a dangerous situation. And it is the beginning of the path to psychological, emotional, physical, sexual abuse. So I don't know if that, I mean, I'm not an abuse therapist. I'm not, you know, I'm just somebody who looks at the broad spectrum of history and sees the different ways that this has manifested. And it, and abuse is about power. We abuse people that we have power over and that we feel like there is something about them that enables us, you know, that we deserve this, that we have the right to do this to them. Um, and, and so, I mean, it's humans cannot be trusted with power. We need to have checks and balances on us. Men as well as women cannot be trusted with power. Um, it's just, we have a system that is more prone to empower white men and disempower women and people of color. That's a good word. Let's end on that. Uh, this is very... fierce today. I like. I'm not like against you. Like I don't know why <laughs> no. I made you. I no. I was That's bringing good. out the best in you. Like I'm. Yeah, I want, there you are. I, I didn't the... mean fierce is a bad thing. You know. Okay, That's good. Shakespeare. That's what Shake. My daughter has that. You know, she's not little anymore. Um, but you know, she may be. She may be small, but she is fierce. Yeah. So. Ah. Uh, yep. Yeah. I'm raising a few small but fierce ones, so that's uh, that's good. And I so now I I feel good about that instead of, um, th feel like I was like the the bad guy. Like no, no, fierce is a good word. Okay, good. That makes me feel better. Um, hey, Doctor Bart, thank you so much for the time. Uh, thank yeah, you for the book. Thanks and, for having me. Uh, yeah, this has been an absolute pleasure. So thank you so much. Yeah.